listening to the premier homebrewing podcast serving Toronto, the GTA, and the rest of Southern Ontario. Recorded from our studio in North York, Toronto, and brought to you via the internet. Featuring interviews with prominent homebrewers and craft brewers from across our great province. This is Brew Talk Online. With your host, Zach Weinberg. It's so yellow and fizzy and tasteless. I love it. And Kevin Freer. Guts down all over the brand new. Like, what's the mixer? Hello and welcome to Brew Talk Online. I'm your host, Kevin Freer. With me, my co-host, Zach Weinberg. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. Welcome to the new Toronto Brewing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a beautiful spot. Yes, thank you very much. We're here in uh, sunny Dundas West. It's actually nighttime. Yeah, it's nighttime. So. There's no sun. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're, we're here. Uh, opened just last week and um, very happy to be here. We're also here with home brewer Richard. Sigismund. Sigismund. The, the last name that no one could say. Infamous Richard Sigismund. And uh, we'll tell you why he's here in a moment. Uh, yeah, first let's know. let's look into the shop here for a sec. Can you give out the address for people who may have not heard about this yet? Yep, yeah, it's 1567 Dundas Street West. What's the cross street? Uh, Dundas and Dufferin. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a uh, very hip area of town. Yeah, nice little spot. Brewery District. Yeah, that's uh, that's been making the news, eh? I, I, what was the verdict on that? Are they going ahead with that or case dismissed? Yeah, no, no brewery districts on uh, temporary objection. Your Honor, it's, it's uh, I think due to the political nature of it, it is uh, it it's on the back burner a little, uh, permanently probably. But instead, they're now making an interactive map of uh, of Toronto's bars and breweries. I think that Jordan St. John. And Robin LeBlanc are in charge of doing that, and they're approached by the city of Toronto. So the brewery district is dead, long live the map of Toronto breweries. Jordan St. John and Robin LeBlanc, the co-authors of the Ontario Craft Beer Guide. That's yes, that's that a new book. Correct. Yeah. yeah, correct. Cool. So um, where should we begin? <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about. So we had a bit of a break there. Zach getting his new store up and running, me getting the new brewery up and running. Took us a little bit longer than we whoa, wanted to. Whoa, whoa, new brewery. Well, we talked about this last time, uh, Forefathers Brewing Co. It's true, and we're drinking your beer right now. I'm enjoying a uh, hoppy wheat. Yeah, we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't have a name for this one yet, but it's, it's like American wheat, I guess, would be the style. It but is very hoppy. It's, it's quite quaffable. It's a quaffable. Very quaffable. Like, uh, <laughs> high poundability. High poundability. Yeah, high poundability. Everyone drank. Uh, so yeah, it's about 4.8%, 40 percent wheat and a and then big charge of Amarillo and Citra in the Whirlpool and in the dry hop. Um, this is a this is the kind of beer I want to drink almost every day. It's got a good smooth, you can just, uh, you smooth just, finish, smooth bitterness to it. High poundability. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like it's going to coat your tongue forever with bitterness, but it is quite flavorful, and it's very pretty. It is very pretty. Yeah, very nice. 
how much, uh, just a quick uh, note, how much, that for a home brewer, how many hops, you know, would you add per gallon if you're dry hopping to get this type of flavor? Oh, that's a really good question. You, you don't know that stuff. Oh, man. You've, you've, always, you're, you've always been more of a commercial brewer. Yeah. Um, how many hops are you adding for your batch right now? So this would have about three kilos of Citra and Amarillo in the Whirlpool. And then uh, about an equivalent amount in the dry hop. Sexy. I usually dry hop after uh, getting close to the final gravity, but not quite there. I don't know if that's just a superstition thing, but I like a little positive pressure coming out of the tank. No oxygen going in there. Um, and then sit on that for five to seven days, depending on how the week falls in the weekend. And then uh, no filter, just find. I mean, for an unfiltered beer, it's remarkably clear, which is crazy considering the amount of wheat in it but take what you get and i think this is one we're going to go ahead with and brew a few more batches and keep it moving once it gets warm right this is what you want yeah this is like when i'm out in the backyard wearing a bikini after i'm done mowing the lawn this is what i drink like like earlier today oh yeah oh yeah nice outside put on your two keys mm-hmm. <laughs> off get at it so Richard has uh, has already started letting you into a little bit on his mindset. Um, Richard, tell us a bit about how you got into brewing, home brewing. It was actually kind of weird. Um, I got approached by Zach at Mel Cibio way back when I was shopping with my wife, and some guy was leering at me while I was making my beer choices. We ended up talking, and it was Zach, and uh, he told me he he home brewed and ran a home brew shop, and I think it was that. December, a month later, Zach came over and helped me with my first homebrew. So it was a stout recipe Zach gave to me. I finished the last bottle of it about three, four weeks ago, and it's still incredibly drinkable after five years, surprisingly. Did you phone Zach and tell him? Um, I'm telling him now. I think this, <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Um, so it, it was kind of a very funny journey, which I think most homebrewers have. Um, I didn't like the beer options that were available in Ontario. And I like cooking, I like being artisanal, and making beer seemed like a logical step. So the first half year I was doing it, I was an absolute doofus. And uh, Zach could probably share one of the clips. Tell the world vlog story. Tell the world vlog story. Well, I was making a Belgian blonde as one of my first recipes, and bought world vlog from Zach. And I'm doing Out of my, my garage. Like this is right the first month that. The shop was open, really. So Zach sells me World Flock inside a really nice-looking Ziploc bag. So I'm doing my Belgian blondes. I want it to look nice and clean, so I put the World Flock in. So I opened up the contents of the bag that Zach gave to me and I put the World Flock in. I think the iodine level that I, that was in there was enough that I'll never get goiter. It was quite nice. So it was 10 tablets of World Flock that went inside that oh beer. My it was clear as hell. Really pretty. <laughs> was it like just like gelatin at the bottom of the kettle? Well, so the problem is, is that that's when you're like really proud of what you're doing and you don't want to admit that it's quite awful. So I think for about three, four months, I was regularly drinking that beer, you know, choking it down, going, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, eventually I did drink more of the rest. But you learn from your mistakes, even at the, at the big leagues, the big, big level brewing. You learn from what you do wrong, even if it's a tiny tweak or a major tweak. So you stumble around at the homebrew level, you make your mistakes, and then hopefully three and a half, four years later, you're not making those same mistakes. So I don't put a whole bag of world block in anymore. 
Now, now for reference, how much Royal Flog do you put in for a five-gallon badge? One. <laughs> That's a one single tablet. Sometimes I even go half tablet. Well, to be honest with you, lately I've been Royal Flog three for okay. most of my beer. Why? Um, I think it depends on what you're making, and I think that the the perception of clarity in a beer for certain styles, IPAs, for example, I think is a little overrated. Um, I think that having a really cloudy IPA, kind of like an East Coast IPA. Tucker, what's wrong with that? I think he does. Uh, he, he likes clear IPAs. Yeah, he's clear, yeah. But like an East Coast IPA, which is nice and cloudy and full of proteins, I think is, uh, you know, it's very acceptable now. People dig it. So right. kind of leaning towards that, that type of brewing. Right. That's the new, that's the new hotness right now is these East Coast IPAs, right? Yep. Have a nice and, nice and juicy. Cloudy as hell. Juicy. Oh, yes. You have, like, all the, the really juicy, lovely hops, as opposed to the West Coast IPAs, which is uh, more of that dank, rank, basement, cedar closet style. It was that. It's moving away from that a little bit more now. Or so says I. Okay. And so what um, what kind of system are you using for these brewers? You're, you're an all-grain brewer. I'm all-grain brewer. Yeah. I've upgraded my system three times. So now my third incarnation. I have a new mash tun. Uh, which is quite big. I could do 10-gallon batches easily with my mash tun. 15-gallon um, boil kettle. Uh, typically, though, I do 5-gallon batches, so I have a lot of space, a lot of wiggle room, and it helps me for some of the bigger beer that I do. Um, if I'm going to do uh, a goose, which I'm going to probably be doing uh, in February or March, I'm going to be doing a 3- to 6-hour boil. So you need that room to do that 3- to 6-hour boil. You need that, that kettle space. Is a three to six hour boil traditional for a goose? Traditionally, or for a lambic base beer? Yeah, they do. They do six hours traditionally. I think the the school thought is you want to do more than your sixty to ninety minute boil because you really want to get um, different complexities of sugars happening. Uh, so, I mean, I I think that you get a really nice darker looking lambic. It's not as blonde, and you do get some different flavors happening in there. From the long boil. Um, I'm not in the mood to sit outside in the winter to do a six-hour boil. I think three hours is plenty fine to get what you need. I'm going to have to do three-hour boils for some of my imperial stouts that I do, depending on what flavors I want out of it. Cool. Um, tell us about your internship. So I decided that I wanted to try something different. I thought about doing an internship at a brewery because I wanted to get involved in the business side or the large-scale side of brewing. When was this? Uh, so about half a year ago, I had the idea, or a year ago, I had the idea of looking into that. Um, and I thought of contacting a couple of breweries that I really idolized, that loved their beer, and I loved the brewers that I met. thought I'd contact some people I knew in Belgium, uh, some beer geek there, it's a very small brewing community, and see what they had to say about possibly an internship. So... Didn't take much work. Ended up talking to the head brewer at Destroysa in West Flanders in, in Belgium, and he was happy to have me over to do uh, an internship. So I moved to Belgium for six weeks, lived in a tiny little village in West Flanders, and worked for what I think is one of the best breweries in the world. It's an awesome experience. Lots of drinking, but lots of hard work as well, too. Mm -hmm. um, so D Destroysa, they're, they're, I guess their most popular brand would be Panapot. Panapot's are flagship right. beer. 
uh, Panapot and Jesus are probably the two most known beer in North America. There's one right for it, eh? Jesus? Well, it's just, just Jesus. A, 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 a TJ, so I guess it's maybe my Canadian accent isn't pronounced so okay. But it's, uh, you'd recognize the label by seeing, um, it looks like a very stone Santa Claus with spirals in his <laughs> eyes, um, a trail of smoke coming out of his mouth, and a Santa's hat on him. Uh, the label's quite recognizable. But those are the two biggest beer. Um, Panapot was kind of a game changer for me when I went to Belgium years ago. Uh, I went in 2011, tried some beer at Destroy when they moved into the new brewery, and was pretty much blown away. So Panapot is kind of a weird little beer. It's not a stout. It's not a quad. It's kind of somewhere in between. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's atypical of the Belgian style. And the more I learned about Destroyce and the more of the beer I had, the more I really learned to appreciate their dark beers. And their barrel-aged beers are absolutely mind-blowing. They've got a crazy barrel program. Unfortunately, we don't get any of the beer in Toronto anymore, in Ontario. It's not available through the LCBO or through a private distributor. So you have to kind of drive across the Buffalo and pick up some bottles there or pick up some bottles when you travel to Europe. I think that's the first place I saw it was in uh, Premier Gourmet in Buffalo, Panapod and Panapod Grand Reserva. Yeah, the, yeah, the Reserva and Grand Reserva, they're yeah. all equal mind-blowing in their own right. Um, so if they're in um, West Flanders, Flanders being known for the Flanders Red, do they do that sort of style? Do they do a lot of sour or, or mixed fermentation stuff? So I think around 2012... For some strange reason, Beer Bistro ended up having a Destroyce night where they had two beers. Uh, one of them was Earthmonk, and I forget what the second one was. Earthmonk is a sour that they did, and it's pretty much available for two to four weeks at Beer Bistro until it's sold out. And that's their Flanders Red, or their okay. take on Flanders Red. They also do um, a beer uh, called Epers, uh, uh, which is the biggest city near the brewery, and that also is a Flanders Red. Both excellent beer. Is that so? I guess that's kind of like your your wheelhouse. Then you like Belgian style beers. I think my wheelhouse is pretty much anything that's not an IPA. I'm okay. not a hothead. <laughs> my palate really doesn't take most IPAs. So West Coast IPAs are pretty much the kryptonite of me. I don't. It's I don't like it. Doesn't feel good. Yeah. You're probably the first person I've ever heard that would say that. I am anti Zach when it comes to drinking beer. <laughs> I'm. Uh, you know, anytime someone's brought out Heady Topper, uh, I always say thank you. I'll have a tiny sip, but I'm not really interested in it. Even though Hetty Topper is not as dank as other IPAs, sure. I just don't enjoy it like everyone else. So I guess my wheelhouse at, at brewing at home is uh, I'm one of the not, I want to say one of the first home brewers, that's not true, but I didn't know a lot of guys that were brewing a lot of Brett, wild yeast, sour beer. And most people the fermentations are anywhere from five days to, to maybe 30 days and not beer that I let go for two years. Uh, you know, just to, to bring up the complexity of the, of the wild yeast that are in there. So I dig that side, but I also dig really high uh, ABV beer. So 7 to 12% ABV mm-hmm. beer. I really like the flavor that alcohol gives the beer if it's done properly and fermented properly. So Imperial Stouts, Quads, I'm now starting to brew some triples, uh, kind of in the Belgian style. That's what I really like. Cool. Um, as a home brewer, it must have been pretty cool to brew with a commercial brewery in Belgium. Um, what what kind of takeaways can you provide to our homebrewing audience uh, that you took away? So I think one of the, the neatest experiences once I was comfortable with the brewery was being able to, during the brew day, sit down with Urban, the, the head brewer there, and just talk beer and talk about brewing. And 
you would just do geek talk where the homebrew is doing Toronto. And I think one of the takeaway messages I have is that even though I've been brewing for five years, it was obvious that I knew what I was doing to a certain extent. I understood water profiles. I understood uh, the whole process of brewing. I understood the recipes. And I understood enough to have a conversation with a guy that, that I and, and many of the people highly respect and respect his product. So I guess one thing is to not underestimate your knowledge. Um, number two is don't over, overestimate your knowledge as well, too. <laughs> there are many things to learn. And something, for example, is looking at a barrel program like they have there and walking through the barrel, barrel room and seeing all the different types of barrels they have and the recipes they have is absolutely mind-blowing. And to sample the barrels and to see what happens with the beer when you let it go is, I think, is absolutely amazing. So I guess one of the take-homes that I had from uh, from brewing is having more respect for the barrel program, having respect for other things like water profiles um, and, and the process, and knowing that every brewer does something differently and you have something to learn from every single brewer. And... Another brewery that I spent a lot of time at there, but not working, was the Dola, which is about an hour bike ride from Osbleerschen. Um, and the Dola also does very non-traditional Belgian beer. Right. Um, other than the quad that they do, they do a, a high alcohol blonde, very hoppy blonde. They do an incredibly hoppy triple, and they do sour beers that use the original Rodenbach sour yeast strain. Uh, in fact, Rodenbach doesn't have the original one anymore. Uh, the Dola uses it, so. Talking to the brewmaster at the Dalla, talking to Chris, I was able to even pick up more tips about brewing, fermentation, fermentation temperatures, bottle conditioning. So you just come back really well-rounded with a different perspective on how to how to brew beer. Um, do you, do you find that um, is that kind of standard? I guess for for these Belgian brewers to have, you know, um, these traditional what we think of as traditional styles like a, a triple or you know, a quad. I know those are like traditionally Abbey style, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, do they generally stick to that because that's what people there are drinking or are they holding on to some sort of a, a tradition? When you go to Belgium, you learn very quickly what people drink there and you learn about the beer geeks there. Toronto has many more beer geeks per capita than Belgium does. Sure. Um, we're, right. we're much more intense. When they drink in Belgium, they drink with a purpose to be refreshed and to drink frequently and freshly. They're drinking basically the equivalent of, of our macro beers here. They're drinking lagers or very light beer. They fill them in Tom Collins glasses. And to be a server at a Belgian bar is absolute help. You're constantly coming to a table. It could be a table of 10 people, 10 Tom Collins glasses filled to the top with the lager or the blonde. And the people at the table will finish that beer in 5-10 minutes. So you're constantly taking away glasses, constantly refilling. They don't like bitterness. They don't like flavor. They want cold and clean. I think the Tom Collins glass is probably the weirdest part of this whole conversation. Very like, strange. You know, you hear about these bars in Belgium that have a different glass for each brewery. And blah, Tom Collins glass, just throw them all in there, right? So I guess part of the tradition of Belgium is the fact that they lost their tradition. So you had all these traditional breweries, never had their traditional glass. They had their traditional styles. And you have all these styles that, that people like me love. Like um like uh, Bruins and Duzes that almost disappeared because people don't want to drink anymore. There's been a bit of a beer revolution in the early 20th century, and people wanted basically the blonde, bland, and cold beer to drink, so it's easily quaffable. And they did not want the intricate, rich, sugar-heavy beer. 
So that was a style that was almost lost. And in fact, it was probably thanks to North America. Um, a lot of the breweries like Cantillon, Destroysa, um, they've had the resurgence and there's been a giant boom in the Belgian brewing scene. So yeah, the Tom Collins glass is mainly a convenience. You pour the beer up to the top, the head flows over the top of the glass, you use a spatula to swat the head off, and you serve it to the table with a very small head on it, they pound it back in five to minutes, repeat, nonstop during the night. And they don't do that to get drunk. They do that just to drink and socialize. And they don't want it to taste like anything. Now, the people who are drinking all the beer at the beer geek bars in Belgium, it's not a lot of Belgians. And I have a chance to work a couple of festivals in Belgium, and it's like pulling teeth to try to introduce a Belgian to the traditional Belgian beer, which they view as non-traditional beer. So mm -hmm. pouring a quad or pouring anything with any IDUs in it, they can't do it. Their palate doesn't take it. Interesting. So it's very funny to try to introduce them to something that tastes like something. Wow. Well, uh, I'm thirsty, so why don't we go to break, Sure. grab one of your beers, Thanks. and come right back. Yeah, we'll be right back. Uh, we're talking with Richard, and this is Blue Talk Online. You're listening to Blue Talk Online. Hey folks, Kevin here from BrewTalk Online. I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about our show sponsor, torontobrewing.ca. For years now, Zach and the boys at torontobrewing.ca have been providing homebrewers across the province with fresh ingredients and equipment to make the best homebrew possible. I must say, when I first walked into the store, I was impressed with the large selection. From extract to all grain, these guys have it all. What's more is the large array of equipment for brewing that they carry, along with everything you need to keg your homebrew and dispense it from your very own kegerator. If you are just getting into homebrewing, try out one of their pre-made ingredient kits. With many years of combined experience and knowledge, they'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Shop in person at the storefront at 3701 Chesswood Drive, right near Downsview Park, or shop online at torontobrewing.ca. Here on Brew Talk Online with our guest Richard Sigismund. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Nailed it. Welcome to Sour Hour. Sour Hour. I think that name's taken. That's well, what we should have called this, is it? We should, we should have trademarked that. How about Welcome to the Hour with the Sourest Man Alive, Richard Sigismund? How does that sound? <laughs> I think that's, that's perfect. Wow, that's, that's perfect. Amazing. Can yeah. you cut that? I will do my best. All right. Uh, so during the break, we were having a brief discussion about. Uh, one, Richard's exposure to some of these great, amazing sour beers and mixed fermentation beers. And then two, how he how he brews them and how he keeps, uh, well, I mean everything. You, you build up drags, you keep banks. Um, you said you enjoy making Brett beers, you enjoy making mixed fermentation beers. So so I guess, I guess one thing I'll say is um, 
there's a couple of homebrewers out there that I find to be interesting. We're talking about about guidelines for for brewing. Um, I'm not a guideliner type of person. I uh, I don't really enter any brewing competitions, and it's not negative against my beer by doing that. But I kind of have a hard hard time pigeonholing some of my beer into certain categories. Um, I'm not doing anything at times that's that crazy, but I just hate the concept of uh, of taking sour beer and all sour beers at one point. So about a year ago, we're kind of under one umbrella. And it's kind of unfortunate. So now when I look at making recipes, I don't follow any real guidelines whatsoever. It's more cooking and palate guidelines that I kind of go by. And that goes for sours and regular beer as well, too. So uh, that's my... That's, that's your take? That's your philosophy yeah. on it? So it's like philosophy is take all the guidelines and fuck them. Just like whatever do whatever you want it's all words on a bottle um calling something a triple if it doesn't take if it's not a properly done triple who cares if it's a triple if you're going to do a super hoppy triple um if the bitterness plays into the uh the the sweetness and the phenols that you get in a triple hell do it they do it properly and and roll with it who cares so as a brewer who brews lots of wild beers sour beers uh yeast centric beers what's your homebrew setup like uh, what can a homebrew do to be more like you uh well some people like to have two sets of um of, of equipment for their their wild yeast stuff and their non-wild stuff i haven't had any infection issues in my beer yet I and mean, i've been doing sours for four years so i just make sure that i really am strict with, with how i clean um, sanitation's clean, uh, key. So make sure that I use, you know, home brewer level caustic. Make sure that you aren't lazy with star sanding. Um, so, so you're using the same, the same plastic gear. You're racking cane, your hoses. I'm using the like same that. plastic. I used to have two, and then I thought a lot about it, and I kind of thought it was silly. I'm storing everything inside my basement. I bought a beer and wine cellar that I made in my basement. And sometimes you go into that cellar, you could smell some of the, the, Goozes that I'm that I'm long term fermenting down there. You could smell it on a day. Just the beer decides to belch up a little more in the air, and there is a smell of the goose. So, if you could smell something, I'm assuming that there there is a chance that there's wild yeast in the air already down there. If there's wild yeast in the air already, then what are you really doing to protect your equipment? And there's wild yeast in the air all around us as well. Uh, you know, on, on a daily basis, there's wild yeast. That some yeast is a little more uh, resilient than others, you know, Pediococcus, for example, as being the, not a yeast, but Pediococcus is harder to kill, and you could get Pediococcal infections, but my philosophy, right or wrong, is if you just look after your equipment, you keep your eyes on your equipment, so eyeball your equipment, make sure you don't have any mold growing, make sure you let things dry properly, rinse after use, use caustic, sanitize properly, you're narrowing and reducing your likelihood of getting infections. I think that plays well into something that uh, Escarpment Labs said when they were on the show. Yeah. Uh, it was a previous episode. You can go check it out. It's, it's probably just under Escarpment Labs. Five. Is it episode five? I don't you know. You just made that yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, they, they mentioned smelling stuff. Mm -hmm. Smell your yeast starters. Um, I think it was Eric, too. Eric Cosano, a previous guest of ours, who said, smell your grain. Taste your hops. Like, yeah. whatever. Probably the opposite of that, but... Um, and if it smells weird and it smells funky, especially when it's yeast-related, it's probably not good. If you smell that racking cane and it smells like old beer, probably didn't clean it right. 
And so I also make sure the plastics did not do anything that would scratch them. When you scratch plastics, that's where you're going to get wild yeast um, living inside the scratches. Mm -hmm. So I try to take care of my equipment as much as possible. Put it away to dry when I'm done. Make sure I'm not shit-kicking it. Um, so, you know, respect your equipment. Respect your beer. The one thing about smell that you said, though, is that was some wild beer, uh, wild yeast, it smells like absolute garbage for the first right. little while. Yeah. So that's the only warnings. If you're doing a goose or you're doing some wild beer, sometimes, not sometimes, always patience is needed. So I guess one, one homebrew tip, if you're going to be using um, wild yeast for primary ferments, don't be sampling that thing after one or two weeks. It's nowhere near where you need it to be. you got to give that four to six weeks at a minimum to get to that attenuated level that you want and for the yeast to be doing what you want you have to clean up and get rid of some of the off flavors out of there some of the recent stuff that i've been reading about is um especially in terms of spontaneous fermentations which i don't know if you've done but we can talk about that if you have but um the, one of the first things that takes over is enterobacter correct yeast which is like e coli it's death <laughs> and it, it'll kill you and it smells awful um and then the theory that, you know, some of the brets and stuff will turn the awful smelling compounds into those great smelling mm -hmm. compounds. But it takes time. I think that came from a study that was done a few years ago where they're taking swabs of, I believe it was Cantillon. And I know some people challenged the results that were found there. But the bottom line is, is that if you're doing something like a spontaneous fermentation, you have to give it time for all the bugs in there to do their job. Now, I did try to do a spontaneous fermentation of sorts. I just wanted to capture yeast in Niagara. Uh, it took some, some samples of wort, left it in various areas around, um, around wine country, uh, to see if I get anything that was really interesting. Um, so I still have the samples at home. I fed them and I've tried to let them evolve over time. I haven't done anything with it. I'm not opposed to doing a spontaneous fermentation in Toronto. Um, my biggest issue with doing a spontaneous fermentation is, if you're doing a lambic beer and you want to do a true spontaneous fermentation, a turbid mash is a pain in the butt to do. To dump a turbid mash in the three to six hour boil would be pretty frustrating. So I've never really been inspired to, to do that simply for what you see as failure. On the flip side, there's so many really nice wild yeast, pre-made wild yeast, yeast that you could buy from, uh, in the, in the States mainly. And now Escarpment's doing it that I kind of ask, why would you want to have certain variables that you can't control introduce to your brewing process? I'd rather have more control of my variables and ensure that after one to three years, I'll have a kick-ass final product as opposed to something I'm just going to pour down, uh, down the drain. How many yeast strains do you have at home in your personal yeast bank? My, my personal bank, I probably have 10. 12 right now um, and that doesn't include commercial yeasts that you could buy from Y yeast or from white labs so so talk to me about this this yeast bank you're you're purchasing stuff everyone kind of buys stuff um, you why don't you just buy yeast from Toronto Brewing? well I do every time I do like to support the locals but uh, there's certain yeast strains that are out there from from companies in the states like East Coast yeast where they have really hard to find retinomyces strains that certain places in Toronto don't carry, no, but that, that aren't made readily available in Canada. That's sort of changing because I know White Labs is releasing some really unique, I shouldn't say really unique, I'm sorry, but unique strains that, that are out there. For example, 
there's a spontaneous Nordic Saccharomyces strain that they're releasing, um, potentially, if they have enough people interested in it, that I'd be really excited to use because you can get really cool flavors from it and, and produce really neat beer with it. My yeast bank is, is isolates that people have found in the States that people have that they've, they've used lab equipment to determine that it is indeed a unique isolate that they've isolated from beer like Cantillon, um, from a certain Quebec brewery. There's an isolate that's out there that, that I have at home. Um, there's stuff that you could use that's, that you just can't find commercially that does really weird and interesting things. So, so take me through then. Say you were to get a pitch of this, uh, Whatever this weird disfinisher Nordic yeast or whatever, and or or this isolate from this nameless Quebec brewery. Um, what are you doing with that? Are you brewing a beer with it, or are you making starter and then splitting that up? How are you keeping I, this? I always make a starter with all the the isolates that I get. I just take growlers, put um, put an airlock on a growler after I put a starter wort in there, and let it go. Um, there's kind of a debate out there whether or not you should refrigerate your starter after it's done its thing. Um, I think current information is saying that yes, you should. I don't have a refrigerator big enough to keep all these growlers, so I keep it in my cellar where it's you know in the low teens temperature wise in the winter, I'm hoping that that increases the yeast viability. It depends what I'm going to be doing with the yeast. A lot of it is stuff that I'm not using as a primary yeast. I'd rather use it as a secondary yeast or a tertiary yeast. Um, so. I'll just pitch uh, basically the dregs or part of the starter into whatever I'm brewing uh, if I think it's fit or if I just want to try something neat or if there's a beer that's not coming along like I want it to, I'll pitch some of that starter into it and see what happens. Cool. Yeah, now, now say one of, your, uh, one of your friends in Belgium sends you a bottle of beer. What are you doing with those dregs? So, again, one of the breweries that I – there's three breweries in Belgium that I love the most. And if you want to... Two of them are Cantillon. Yeah. One of them's destroys it. <laughs> so I I really respect everything that is done at Cantillon, that is done at Destroysa, and that is done at Didola. Didola has a very limited profile of what they do um, beer-wise. They only have about four flagship beer, and then they do um, a Reserva series. And the Reserva series are wild yeast barrel-aged beer that are some of the best, most mind-blowing beer I've ever had. You get such depth of flavor from the barrel and from the yeast that it really is a game changer. So I'll use the Dola as an example. Um, I think Zach shared it with me. I had a bottle of Stillnacht Reserva 2010 that I was able to get for my trip to Belgium uh, two, three years ago. Yes. And it was probably my top five beer I've ever had. It was absolutely perfect. I saved the dregs and I combined that with Dregs from uh, I think it's from Russian Rivers Consecration, and I use that. Oh, neat. I use that in uh, in a, a faux Flanders red that I made that I aged on foraged Ontario sour cherries. So I saved the yeast slurry from that and some of the sour cherries and some of the French oak cubes that I had in there. It's sitting inside a jar, and I'm going to use that for a future beer. Um, yeah. So you know that's that's delicious. way more work than I would have done. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess that's the if anyone's interested in doing anything that involves wild yeast, the important thing is patience, cleanliness, and space. So a lot of the beer, if you want to do a goose, if you want, after one year you could drink it. It picks up a lot of complexity beyond that, but one year minimum is what you need. If you're gonna let it, 
if you want to brew a beer like that, you just need to be prepared to let a beer ride, to set it and forget it. Just make sure you check the airlocks every now and then so they don't go dry. And to be cool with brewing something that you're not going to have immediately. It's long-term payoff as opposed to short-term payoff. And you need the space to do it too. Um, and obviously you want to keep things really clean. If you're going to use plastic buckets to brew, I would dump the buckets after you use it for your beer. They tend to smell. Even the food-grade ones tend to pick up a lot of smell from the wild yeast. And there's a lot of oxygen permeation that happens. So depending what you're brewing, they could get quite tart. So just something to keep in mind. Cool. Very cool. Tips. 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 What are your favorite bread strains and for what? Like, what would you use if you had to brew an IPA? What would you use if you're, et cetera? Two very simple answers for IPA is a great example. When a lot of people think of IPAs, they think of using the most neutral yeast that you can find out there. So, so Chico or you know, 001, White Labs 001. Uh, it's neutral, doesn't taste like anything, attenuates well, that's the hop speed. That's totally cool, gives you what you want, but using Brettanomyces for, for IPAs is absolutely gorgeous if you know how to, know how to use the proper hops with it and do proper bittering. Uh, two things that I, that I would suggest. One yeast is Brettanomyces claseni. You get a lot of mango tropical notes. I personally find that I get mushroom and funk after it ages for six months. Some people don't get that, but I find that I get that in almost everything I make. It becomes very much for me. But if you want a mango load of a beer, combine that with um, with hops that would accentuate it or with some floral hops, and it'll be absolutely perfect. The second would be, uh, we used to think it was Brett, but now they've changed it to Saccharomyces. So it used to be Brett Brooks Trois, but now it's called Sac Trois. Another absolutely gorgeous yeast. It smells like flowers. Um, so if you want to brew an APA or an IPA and you want it to be really floral and pretty, that plus Cascade or Nelson Sauvin is, is absolutely amazing. So you can get a really nice, delicate beer. The only warning for people, as long as we're talking about IPAs, is if you're going to be using uh, a Brett strain with IPAs, Bretts bring out the IBUs. So don't be looking for a 100 IBU beer. You dial that thing down to about 50, 60 IBU. And uh, and that way it's not a total hot bomb. They still get the intricacies of what you're brewing with. Otherwise, the different strains of Brett, a lot of them add a lot of secondary uh, qualities to it. There's a really weird Brett strain that I picked up from East Coast Yeast that I found in a beer that I made. It gave it a pina colada flavor. So that's the only way I could describe the beer. It tastes like a, like a pina colada. No idea why. It's a blonde. It tastes really neat. Great in the hot summer day if you're sitting underneath an umbrella. Um, but, Taking walks in the rain. Yeah. If you like pina coladas. <laughs> God, I was trying to hold that in. No, let it out. Let it out. <laughs> I, I actually just had a, had a brief question on that. I've never heard someone mention before that Brett's would accentuate the IBUs. Do you think that that's a, um, a function of the, like, the lower finishing gravity you kind of normally associate with Brett or just? Don't associate Brett with lower finishing gravity. When you think of Brett, treat it like any other yeast. You want to do a starter with Brett, especially with commercial strains from Weiss and White Labs because their cell count is really small. So you should look at stepping that starter up. You should look at giving Brett a lot more time, both in a starter and in uh, in the beer that you make. Uh, Brett takes a long time to, to finish, and some people suggest that there are two phases to Brett growth. Initial phase, a bit of a lag, and then it starts to take off a little bit again afterwards. So... I, it's not from not finishing. Brett finishes really well. 
doesn't finish like a like a saison yeast per se, but you will get Brett doing what your your standard sack strains do. So I do not recall what the science is. I am a scientist by by profession, <laughs> but um, but the years of drinking have ruined my head. I'm not a scientist. Well, actually, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I do a lot of those. Uh, but I, I don't recall the actual reason as to why Brett accentuates the bitterness, but it accentuates the bitterness of both the hops mm-hmm. and of the grain. So if you're planning on doing something with Brett, just really watch the dark grains that you use. Don't use things that are too astringent or bitter, or else it's totally amplified. So Carafa too special, it's your friend. If you ever want to make a dark Brett beer or a Brett stout, Carafa too special is an absolutely amazing uh, grain to use with Brett. A D bitter, D husk. Yeah, D husk. Exactly. Yeah. So something that doesn't have, uh, that wouldn't put forth that type of accurate character. Yeah, as opposed as opposed to your roasted barley right. or so yeah, black patent. So you, yeah, black patent. You want to avoid with Brett roasted barley. You could use, but just Ooh. dial that down. It's 1990s all over again, right? None of us could drink in the 90s. So what are... Some of, some of us could. <laughs> what are some of the um, Brett strains or wild yeast strains that you're most, you're, more, you're most excited to use in 2016? 2016, I'm looking forward to finally getting around and trying the, um, the Brett, the, the real version of Brett Bruxtois, which is Brett Vray. Um, there's a Brett Gray, and I think there, there's another name, uh, Brett Dre as well, too, that, that is out there. Um, I used one for cast days, wish I had a little more fermentation time for it, so clean up. It was drinking really young. So you do get some Cheerios or mousy properties to it when it's too young. But I really, I, I've been trying to figure out what I want to do an all Brett beer with that would utilize that Brett, uh, that Brett Dre that I have at home. It's very hard to think of something that to be really floral and strawberry-like that may have a little bit of that Cheerio maltiness to it um, and trying to mm-hmm. pair it with a beer. I think something obvious would be doing like a, like a Albrecht stout. Um, it'd be a very fruit-forward tasting stout. It'd be pretty cool to do. Um, or you could just take the easy route and just do a blonde and see what you get with a blonde. With it. Yeah, I was thinking more like Special K with strawberries in it. Like a breakfast cereal <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, so we could... Mar- LCBO wouldn't sell it, but that would be... Right, yeah. Kind of a kid eating special K with right. beer names on it, but I like the idea. Yeah, uh, let's make a line of Brett beers specifically for, for children, children, <laughs> children, children and age. fitness enthusiasts. Yeah, <laughs> children under the age of eight. Let's be very specific. Uh, I wanted to go back just real briefly about this. Uh, you've foraged cherries for a beer. I foraged cherries almost every year. I couldn't do it last year because I was in Belgium for my internship. But like you went out and picked them yourself oh, yeah. from the wilderness. Well, it's Toronto. How much wilderness do we have? A couple yeah. blocks. He has a neighbor with a cherry tree. No, I have a neighbor with a cherry tree who I don't talk to, and I took my ladder and picked uh, 20 <laughs> They were They were over the fence. They were over the, the first fence. year it was over yeah. the fence. The second year I decided to knock on his door and point out to him that he doesn't use his cherries, and he was totally fine with me picking his tree. So someone I don't know, um, I had a very close relationship while, with him while I was picking the cherries. He was asking <laughs> me what I thought about um, Volvos because he wants to buy a Volvo. So he came out to have a minute conversation. Solid family with me. car. Yeah. yeah, I know nothing about cars. It was a very nice attempt for him to, to be my friend. But uh, yeah, every year I get his cherries. And uh, another beer that I want to do with Toronto Forge uh, vegetation is a sumac beer. We have lots of sumac around Toronto, and you get crazy. Really nice lemony flavors of it. 
And that's going to be the new thing, Toronto Forged Beers. I saw a dead skunk on the way to, uh, to here. And that was, <laughs> I wonder if we could do a dead skunk IPA. I wonder if that'd be quite good. Or if you could just harvest the rage in the air from the traffic I got stuck in on the way here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe throw that into a beer. Yeah. Um, there, that is, uh, I have heard of other breweries like foraging beers, like scratch brewing in Ohio or Illinois, somewhere around there. They only forage ingredients. I thought that was super unique. We always talk about this Ontario terroir, and that's home brewers are going to be the ones who, who push that, right? Sounds like I had really... no idea Sumac grew here. Yeah, well, we have tons of Sumac. You just you probably just don't see it. It's probably, along, I probably see it every day, right? It's all <laughs> along the, the rivers in any Toronto Park. You see Sumac. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's a Portlandia sketch where you're talking about. Right. You know, uh, we, only, uh, we only make beer that we forage uh, for, including the water. It's made from puddled water. Well, we're in the right neighborhood for that here at uh, the New Toronto Brewing location in the Brewery District. Yes, sir. And on that note, maybe a word from our sponsor. Put it in my pocket, in my bag, pocket, put it in my pocket, in my bag.
Okay, and we're back. Uh, Brew Talk Online. Richard Sigismund is our guest. We're just going to wrap this thing up uh, real quickly. What's uh, What are your future plans there, Richard? Well, currently I'm doing some work with uh, with Jeff Mantle at Muddy York Brewery in East York, uh, helping out there a little bit, still home brewing, and uh, still kind of keeping my eye out to see if there's something I could do in Toronto at the, at the bigger level. Uh before we get into that real quick, Jeff's coming up on his one-year anniversary. That just passed. Just on Saturday, nice. yeah. Thanks. Did you guys go? I was not able to make it. I would have loved to. But my wife had her <laughs> office Christmas party in February. So Neat. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved Jeff's beers. He makes some great stuff. I think it's pretty great to work with a guy who's a very solid brewer, has amazing technique, and watching in my limited time there, seeing beer just keep on evolving in a getting even better and better. I think that every brewery kind of strives for that. Mm-hmm. You you could have a perfect beer, but have it consistently perfect. And even improving on what you do, uh, I think is really, really hard to find. Uh, and Muddy York, I really enjoy the direction they're going in. His beers are were clean to begin with, and they're even, even better, even more punchy as time's going on, which is great to see and great to be a part of. Yeah, Jeff and I... Uh brewed an IPA together that won a silver medal in the national, the Canadian, uh, the Ales comp when it was the national qualifier for the NHC. Oh, right. And, um, yeah, so we had an entry into the national homebrewers conference, but, um, in the end, our low IBU IPA was, um, just deemed not uh, bitter enough in, in, at, for a BJCP competition, a national competition. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, you know, 70 IBUs or, or 60 oh IBUs, and it, it needed another 20 IBUs, another full ounce or two at 60 minutes. Got to smash the patriarchy. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah competitions are a weird yeah, thing, right? Uh, you know, it's you get 12 IPAs sitting in front of you, and sometimes it's that one with that punch that sticks out, right? Yeah. Um, speaking of NHE, NHC, it's uh, open for entries, I believe. I believe you have to register right now. That's not something I do, so I'm not too... If you're hearing this, it's too late. It's, yeah, you definitely filled up. Just yeah. a shameless plug, I didn't enter anything good against <laughs> I opted for six entries. If I get them, I will brew six awesome beers. And win six colds. Yeah, Ninkasi for Zach, right? Exactly, that's the goal. Uh, OBAs are coming up, so that's taking up a lot of my time. The Ontario Brewing Awards, reading through style guidelines and seeing what I want to enter and... Looking at last year's winners, I think there's uh, a lot you can do. It's it's all over the place. <laughs> it is all over the place. It's huge Trafalgar. Yeah. At the head. Best. I wonder. I wonder who will take the best new brewery this year. We be we are we are eligible for new best new brewery. That's pretty good. So, tell tell us about a little bit more about your brewery to uh, to close things up. Your these beers are awesome. Thank you. Um, where can people get them or buy them or when will people be able to get them? Uh, first, are you, are you able to say the name of the beer that we're drinking? Oh, uh, you're putting it's, me on the spot. It's a Russian Imperial Stout with cinnamon and vanilla yeah. coming in at um, an ABV of 8.5. And I'm just going to pour a little in my glass so I could drink more because it's so bloody good. Thank you. The, um, it's in Russian? It's, yeah, it's so it's Piotr Chetira, if I'm pronouncing that right. It means Peter the Fourth in like hack Russian, uh, basically what we put into Google Translate. Uh, so when I was designing that, I wanted 
you know, you look at all these big things like Hunapu and Dark Lord and things like that. And like, they're these big adjunct stouts, right? They have weird crap thrown in them, you know, mole sauce or whatever and vanilla beans. And it's like, that's great. I want, I want to make one of those, but I don't want it to be 12%. Yeah. Uh, that's just, that's way too much. Like, you get your three ounce sample and you're like, I'm good. You know, I wanted one that I'd actually want to drink on a day to day basis. Really so good. That's what I came up with. Thank you. It's very, it's very simple. Like we were saying earlier, Carafa 3, that's your go-to. Nice. Or, you know, or Carafa Special 3, I should say, and, and a little bit of chocolate malt and uh, a little bit of brown malt. And... Don't give away all the trade secrets. This is a yeah. podcast. <laughs> and and 98% Maris Otter. Yeah, 200% filter malt. But the nice thing about this beer is um, if I'm drinking an Imperial Stout, I do like that residual sweetness, mm-hmm. depending on also what the bitterness is. Um, and this is a vanilla and cinnamon stout, and it's not like the cinnamon is punching you in the mouth, right. dominating the flavor. It's balanced. I hate using the term well balanced, but I'll use it here. The sweetness and the vanilla and the cinnamon all balance each other out nicely. It's very well balanced. I do really like the sweetness. It's on the higher end for an imperial stout, mm-hmm. I think, but it's a great beer to have as um, an end of dinner beer with a decaf chai tea or having it with vanilla ice cream. Or something awesome. Like, it's like a great dessert beer. See, I'm all about the food pairings of beer right now. I really enjoy thinking about beer and how you could pair it with food and how you could bring out the best of the food and the beer. It's not always just about cracking open a bottle and drinking it. You're having a nice dinner. You open up something like this for dessert, you'll get, like, like a standing ovation. Depending on what you're serving for dessert. Good on you, sir. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that was a a great review. I'm going to give my address on this podcast so you can drop more bottles off. Great. Uh, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna finish this off. Probably open another beer and uh, enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening. You can check us out on what are we on? We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You can hit up brewtalkonline at gmail.com. As always, thank you to our sponsor, TorontoBrewing.ca. Brings you each and every show. Uh, Zach, what's the address again for the new shop? It's fifteen sixty seven Dundas West. Yeah, beautiful store. Come check it out. What do you do? Like a nine to five? Uh, we're 11 to 6 here great Uh, so check out that website uh, check out ours rate us on iTunes because that helps us for some reason and uh, thank you for listening happy drinking brew beer drink beer everyone accountability accountability